This is episode 39 of Cinescope, and this machine, zero defects. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning to the show today is Eric Skoll to talk about one of his favorite films, Inner Space. Eric, how are you doing tonight? I'm great, Chad. It's good to be back. It is, and it was sort of a last-minute workaround kind of thing. Uh, the guest I originally had planned had to postpone by a week, and you had just mentioned a couple days ago uh, that you wanted yeah. to talk about this movie, and so I said, "Hey, Eric, how about we talk about it now, this week?" <laughs> and you were you were all gung ho and ready to go, which I appreciate. Yeah, um, there's definitely I have a lot of passion for this movie, and uh, I was I was thinking about it for some reason, can't really remember, but. Uh, also speaking with you. So I was like, hey, this, by the way, we should, should talk about this sometime. Uh, and it ended up working out really, really well. Yeah, you just celebrated a birthday a couple days ago. So that's right. Voice to voice. I want to wish you a happy belated birthday. <laughs> oh, gee. Well, voice to voice. I want to thank you, sir. <laughs> well, uh, how about you just quickly reintroduce yourself to the show, uh, the listeners out there so they can familiarize themselves with your voice? Sure. Um, I am Eric Skull, and uh, you may know my voice if you've listened to uh, a long-running Harry Potter podcast called MuggleCast, which has been going for 12-odd years uh, since 2005. But uh, otherwise, uh, I, there was a Game of Thrones podcast I was a part of, Game of Owns at some point, uh, and just general general stuff about me. I like Harry Potter and podcasting, and I live in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm thrilled to be back on, is this the third, third episode that we've done together? Yes, this is the third episode because we talked about frequency and serendipity and That's now right. inner space. But you were also on a bonus episode to talk about the frequency TV show. Yes. And, uh, oh boy, that was before, that was before it went the way that it did. Right. And I, I don't think either of us have finished watching that show since. I don't think either of us, I don't think there'll ever be another bonus episode talking about that show. But, uh, but <laughs> yeah, we talked fantastic. about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The movie's great. I recommend everybody uh, give that one a listen for sure. Yes. And we are returning to our roots, uh, as it were, with another Dennis Quaid film. So, yes. uh, how about we just go ahead and dive in? Are you ready? Let's do it. I'm ready. Okay, so we are talking about Inner Space, which was released on July 1st of 1987. It was directed by Joe Dante, who directed the It's a Good Life segment of The Twilight Zone, the movie. Gremlins and Gremlins 2, the new batch, Explorers, The Burbs, Small Soldiers, and Looney Tunes back in action. It was written by Jeffrey Bohm and Chip Poser, and the music was composed by the legendary Jerry Goldsmith, who is composed a whole slew of sci-fi and non-sci-fi that includes Alien, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, Star Trek First Contact, Insurrection, Nemesis, and the theme for Star Trek Voyager, as well as Gremlins, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, Hollow Man, The Mummy, Small Soldiers, Looney Tunes Back in Action, Disney's Mulan, Air Force One, Congo, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, and Poltergeist 1 and 2. To name a few. Yeah, just a, just a few of them. Just a few minor films out there. He, he's definitely one of the greats. And 
unfortunately gone, but at least we still have works like this and all those other classics to look back and listen on. Agreed. The movie stars Dennis Quaid, Martin Short, Meg Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, Fiona Lewis, Robert Picardo, and Vernon Wells. So how about we just jump into it? Eric, what was your first experience with this movie? Gosh, I can remember seeing this movie at home, maybe like in the basement at my parents' house uh, when I was very young. And this was just one of the movies that I think my father may have illegally taped off of like HBO or um, Showtime or Cinemax or one of, one of those pay channels. You know, you're not supposed to tape them. But I, I came across this movie on, I think it was, it might have even been Betamax, to be honest. And it was uh, just as my as my dad did. He had a sort of uh, collection of uh, of films uh, on, that he'd recorded on tape, and I just looked at it by title, and I was like, "What's this?" And I think he said it was a good movie, so I'm like, "I'm gonna put it in." And uh, I remember watching it as a kid, and really just finding it to be hilarious. But um, in later years too, I really started to appreciate like the uniqueness of this movie and also the performances and the writing. Uh, this is a movie that I think gets better the more times that you watch it uh, and is even pretty good to start. This was a movie that you texted me about the other day. I had texted you to wish you a happy birthday and you said, hey, let's talk inner space sometime. And the very first thing I did was I opened my browser, went to Wikipedia and said, what is this movie? <laughs> so it was yet another movie that you are completely introducing me to. I love it. So I went into this literally 100% clueless. I had no idea what this movie is about. I looked it up on Wikipedia. I saw it was a 1987 sci-fi film starring Dennis Quaid. And that's pretty much it. And even before hitting play, I, I did see that it starred Martin Short and Meg Ryan and was directed by Joe Dante, who directed both the Gremlins films, which I've only seen one of those and was executive produced by Spielberg and a score by which Jerry Goldsmith. And I, not to I, interrupt, which Gremlins did you see? <laughs> I did see the first one. Oh, okay. The second yeah. one is is very different, and I do like the second one better, actually. Yeah, I need to revisit the first one and then watch the second one for sure, because I'm I'm even fuzzy on the first one. I think I've only seen it once. It yeah, it's terrifying. It's it's very <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> I recently had a friend say it's one of his favorite Christmas movies. So Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's that's that's lumped in there with Die Hard as to like what constitutes a Christmas movie, and I think they both fit the bill, so there's that. Right. And then, you know, aside from all of that basic, very basic information, I, I saw the poster, which does feature a giant hand with uh, something. I, I didn't look too closely, but something in between the fingers. So I figured, okay, maybe it has something to do with shrinking. But even then, I didn't really know anything. And so I, I love going into movies like this with completely nothing. I didn't even have a spoiler-free plot summary to base my knowledge of the film off of. I just had the yeah. title, a glimpse at the poster, and so that was it. And I enjoyed it. I, I had a good time with the movie, and uh, let, let's just talk about the the story. I, I, I love that right from the bat, it's a mystery what's going on. You, you have this introduction at a party to this character of Tuck, uh, played by Dennis Quaid, who's a drunkard. He is sort of braggart. He 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 
has this sort of feel of fallen from glory. Yeah. And then from there it expands and you realize he maybe has something up his sleeve. And then you get into the scene at the lab and you, you have this mysterious music playing by Goldsmith and mm-hmm. all this stuff is happening and you really don't know what any of it is. There's, it looks like a maybe sort of spacecraft and there's already been a couple of hints dropped about rabbits. And again, you can make, guesses based on the poster based on this and that but you don't know anything until the moment it happens Mm. the moment that they turn on the machine and he shrunk and that's it so i i love that the the mystery of it all and there's several mysteries throughout the film that you just sort of have to wait to figure out i i just really love the the opening sequence during the during the credits with um it turns out to be like a glass of ice you know that you're sort of wandering through there's this very eerie music and you don't know what's going on but it's essentially the camera is doing an extreme close up on like the crystalline structure of some ice and then glass is poured and of course tuck is at the party making a fool of himself but there is a mystery to this film and i think that in spite of all that this film remains i think one of the funniest movies that you can see there's there's a lot of humor here even though they're dealing with you know science and science fiction and it's you know heavy at at parts i guess but it's really just i think i think of this film predominantly as a comedy with a really unique kind of thing like this movie was uh 1987 that's two years before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids came out. So even it's even it predates that. And there just aren't that many movies about shrinking. There aren't that that many movies about, I guess, what this film would call miniaturization. It's always kind of a cool trick of the camera when they do something like that in I was actually just watching Willow was on at a bar that I was at earlier today. Um, and there's those two characters that are like a couple inches high that just walk around interacting with the main characters and, you know, uh, Warwick Davis and, and Val Kilmer. But like, there's not there really aren't that many movies that deal with this. And I think that makes it extra special, as do the the incredibly well casted cast of characters. Yeah, and even once the the machine does miniaturize and you see, okay, this has to do with shrinking, Mm. you don't really know why until he's inside the body and exploring and you discover the mission sort of as he goes about it. And I I like that. And other mysteries include like, who's the guy with the gloves or what is the significance of Jack's (laughs) dream? You you, you get introduced to Martin Short's character, Jack, at the hospital. And he... he, (laughs) He's clearly some sort of hypochondriac. He's a regular visitor. The The doctor even makes a joke about how my practice is based on your visits. Yeah. And and he, he tells this very detailed dream that eventually actually happens. So th- there's this weird mystery around that even. Yeah, that might not even be resolved. I, I think that's just kind of a, a, a really interesting premonition that Jack had that comes true. That would be something I'd love to see them develop in the sequel (laughs) (laughs) right right i'm still by the way it's been 30 years i still want them to make a sequel of interspace there never was one but uh we'll talk about of course the ending of this film this film just has such a high level of goodwill i think as well like between uh jack and tuck um especially you know as they become friends through this situation but even the villains even the the henchmen uh mr igo and the cowboy who's so charismatic there's just like a lot it's a lot of fun watching them and i think that there's 
there's there's been extra attention paid to uh, by the filmmakers to kind of making this a very colorful world um, in the in the differences of characters, in the differences of uh, sets, in the different scenes and and locations used in the movie. I think it's like you know late '80s San Francisco, uh, and it seems like a lot of this was shot. Uh, either on location or in very convincing sets, but it's colorful. It's it, it it's a nice sunny summer day that or two that this film takes place during. Yeah, and the visuals themselves, when you get to inside the body of Jack or inside the body of Lydia, as we come to find out, those visuals are surprisingly advanced for a 1987 film. And you know something else that I didn't know going into this movie was that it had won an Academy Award. It's Joe Dante's only Academy Award. Uh, for one of his films, I believe. Oh, and oh my God. so I, I made it a goal to guess what the Academy Award was for while watching the movie. <laughs> and hey, I guess correctly, it was visual effects. Um, mm. So it 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 really is impressive how advanced the the visuals are for a film of that time. Yeah, I mean, everything from the uh, eye, I guess it's not an eye canal, but like the visual cortex, uh, the ear canal, uh, Jack's heart, when he's trying not to get, when uh, Tuck is trying not to get sucked in because Jack is flipping out, like all of that is really cool. And actually, there's there's parts where the scenery around Tuck is disgusting. Um, you know, he's trying to clamp on or latch on to the insides of ventricles or mucous membranes or something, and the scenery is allowed to just sort of peel away <laughs> with the <laughs> with the 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 sharpness of the of whatever they're using to to latch as an anchor. So I think that that is actually a strength of this film as well, like, because it sells the believability. Any lesser made set or materials would would just not work. And you you get a real close-up of, like, (laughs) stomach acid and all sorts of other things about the body. And then, on the other hand, it's also at times played for comedy. Um, When Jack is talking to Tuck, and then he's using the restroom, and afterwards has to check to make sure Tuck is still there. Right. Uh, That's, you know, it's like, oh, that's, it's it's funny. And it's, a lot of the source of the comedy, these jokes can be made because of the the subject matter, like the unique situation the characters find themselves in, which sets it apart from other movies because the the circumstances are different. Let's go ahead and move into the characters, unless you had something else to add to the story. Um, yeah, no, no, let's let's do it. Okay, so uh, Tuck is probably the youngest Dennis Quaid role I think I've seen. <laughs> he definitely surprised me with how young he was when he first walked on screen, and I was like, whoa. Okay, that's a little bit younger than I'm used to because I think probably the Dennis Quaid that I always have in my mind is that late 90s, early 2000s Dennis Quaid. Yeah, Parent Trap. Right, and, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. And Frequency. Frequency as well. Uh huh. And, you know, he's still, even in a role like this, he, he's just so likable from the moment he walks on screen. Yes, he's drunk out of his mind and making <laughs> a, a jerk of himself, but you like him. He's got that Quaid smile and... He, he just takes over the screen as soon as he's on it. I completely agree. Tuck is a character who you kind of probably shouldn't like. For instance, the, the opening scene is a perfect example. All of these other, you know, military guys who are truly American heroes, like that cannot be understated. Tuck just takes the piss out of them, you know, is just be misbehaving. And you still like him more. 
than than them. You know, they're at a benefit. They're at some kind of gala. And Lydia, poor Lydia is just doing some work, you know, getting some interviews in. And all of a sudden there's this ruckus in the kitchen. Um, You know, Tuck is really a character who has not a lot going for him other than his good looks and smile. And he is smart. That is demonstrated multiple times throughout the film. But he, his life is sort of, he's not organized or something. He's, he's falling apart at the seams due to his alcoholism. And even in the beginning of the movie, within the first five minutes, you know, Meg Ryan's character of Lydia leaves him. Uh, you know, she cannot help but be seduced by him. But then immediately the next day realizes the error of her ways and says, nope, got to go for good. So Tuck really has nothing left to lose. He has nothing else to do except for this project he's been working on for two months, studying rabbits and miniaturization. And I think it's kind of cool. It's sort of a redeeming quality of the character that he is so intelligent because it saves his neck and saves the events of the film on more than one occasion. He's resourceful. And even though he likes to have a really good time. It's sort of like you taking a peek at my notes. <laughs> he, he, like I was saying earlier, he's, he's fallen from grace. Yeah. You can tell that at the beginning, he, he has a past to him. He has done great things. He's had a great life, but at this point in his life, in his career, he sort of lost it. He's, he's drunk and trying to almost ride the coattails of these people who are doing more advanced things than he ever did. Yeah. And so he's lost his status. He loses Lydia in those first few minutes, like you mentioned. But again, you, you can also tell that from the start, he, he sort of has something planned. He alludes to this project that he's working on, this thing that's going to blow everybody away, a sort of yeah. ace up his sleeve. And he is smart. He, he does his homework. He studies up on rabbits. He studies up on the technology of his vehicle that he's going to be traveling through the body of this rabbit with. And that comes into handy later in the film when he, he taps into the optic nerve and the, the inner ear and is able to morph Jack's face. Um, all, all these things that, that, that were built into his sort of vehicle, his sort of uh, transportation within the body. Mm. And he's able to apply that to a new host and adapt to that new environment that he wasn't expecting. And, you know, he brags at the beginning of the film because, you know, he kind of has the stuff to back it up. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And then as we come, well, let's talk about Jack first before I make that point. So Jack, again, this is probably the youngest Martin Short film I've seen, even though I think I looked it up. I think it was 37 at the point this was made. So I I don't know if it was just, he maybe got a later start to his career or I just haven't seen some of those earlier Martin Short films, Mm -hmm. but you know, his character here is this vanilla kind of guy who doesn't know any sort of adventure in life. He, he's a grocery store clerk. He's a paranoid hypochondriac and it's just an interesting contrast to Tuck. He's almost a polar opposite. Yeah, I would agree with that a lot. And I think Jack's timidity and his overall non-worldliness is given a, a, a shock to its system when Tuck shows up. It, al- it allows for a lot of great character development, like watching the character of Jack grow throughout this film in in many ways, while still retaining a sort of integrity that his sort of nice boy character had at the beginning is really interesting. And Martin Short is genuinely hilarious in this film. There are so many moments, there are so many lines. It, it goes, It goes, you know, back to the writing and things, and the careful, I think, heavily specific pacing 
and 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 you know the plot structure and and all of that stuff. But Martin Short is just funny to watch, and that's and and he like his smile when they're when he's dancing or his excitement when he understands something that they're about to do or when he's getting psyched up with the adrenaline it's 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 just it's it's so watchable and really if you think about it this is sort of like uh what we were talking about during serendipity where both John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale's characters have only a few minutes of screen time together yet their characters are so intertwined and Jack and Tuck are constantly, you know, on the line with each other, talking to each other, but are not really in the same scene. It's 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 cuts, it's different scenes and the relationship between them though, but you know, throughout the film, you really buy. And I think that's a a testament to again direction, acting, everything that you see these two men who would not ordinarily have anything to do with each other relate to each other on on a very human level as well. Um something that comes to mind is when uh when Tuck asked Jack to stand in front of a mirror <laughs> just so he can see what he looks like. And he's like, ooh, ooh, we need some, some extra help. Right, but right. He doesn't, uh, he, he ultimately is not, I think, cruel about his insights. Like at one point, Jack says, oh, you know, I'm a Safeway clerk. Like I work at a grocery store. And Tuck does not make any judgment about that. Or if he does, he doesn't vocalize it. Like there's just, they're in this dire situation. I think the right level of, Weight is put on to the fact that Tuck can only be in there for another, like, you know, 90 hours or whatever. So it's a big deal. Yeah, they do have this really great back and forth with each other. The movie really does, as as great as Dennis Quaid is in this movie, it it really does ride on Martin Short's performance. He he has the right level of slapstick and comedy and even the the more genuine traits and the more yes. uh, the, the more serious moments as well. Uh, that that really helped to anchor the film around his performance, mm-hmm. and they they learn from each other, which is the best part about it. I think you you have Tuck learning from Jack. The well, you see Jack getting closer to Lydia towards the end of the film, yeah. and Tuck has to view this from the outside. He's in the inside, but you know what I mean. From the outside, <laughs> he, he, he's separate <laughs> he's from, from the situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Jack has this much more humble approach to Lydia. He has this approach of, "Wow, what a beautiful woman! How lucky she would be if, if, if I had her, because I would make her feel special and I would make her feel like she was important to me." And through that interaction and seeing how it affects Lydia, Tuck learns, "Okay, I need to be more appreciative of." her role in my life. Yeah. And then likewise, on the other side of the coin, Jack learns through Tuck to sort of seize his opportunities to take chances. There are several moments in the film when Jack is thrust into these situations, these less than ideal situations where he has to react mm-hmm. and he's not from a life where he has to react to things. He <laughs> he just scans the item and puts it in the bag and that's basically it. Mm-hmm. So after going through several of these situations where Tuck is walking him through what to do, how to react, where to go, all those sorts of things. He starts making those decisions on his own, separate yeah. from Tuck. He doesn't think he's separate from Tuck. He thinks, oh, Tuck's going to give me a little bit of a an adrenaline boost here, <laughs> and I'm going to be a little bit more powerful. But then he ends up doing those things on his own. And so at the very end of the film, we see him going off on a new adventure, putting his old life behind him, and going out into the world with a, a new outlook. And so th- those the way they build off of each other is just so great. That's exactly it. I definitely agree with you on that. Uh, what other characters do you want to talk about? 
Oh, a lot. Uh, Liv- Lydia, for sure. Let's, let's, uh, we'll start with Lydia. Lydia, Meg Ryan, uh, character is the love interest of this film, but also she really holds her own and has things to do in the plot that are not, you know, sort of traditional, just a love interest in this film about these two guys. First of all, she's a journalist. She breaks the story of technology being bought and sold illegally, tracking down the cowboy who's the fence, who is, you know, being used in the story by the villains. Victor Scrimshaw and Dr. Kanker. And so she basically, you know, Tuck knows well enough to recruit her, to get Jack to recruit her. But, you know, throughout the film, her sort of arc, just like the more you think about her as a character, the more she's, I think, a picturesque, strong, independent woman. I mean, she, we later find out and discover, come to discover, has been pregnant with Tuck's baby. She didn't tell him. And it's been, I think, two months. She probably definitely knows by now. But she's going through life like Tuck was not good to her. And she's still, you know, putting herself, I guess, in harm's way, going out there and investigating and following up leads and going undercover with the cowboy. It's kind of badass. She's not allowing her relationship to define her. And she's still, you know, she's just a very strong character. She breaks some tropes as well. So there's a scene where she leaves the bar with the cowboy and tells Jack to follow her. And Jack shows up and storms into the cowboy's room thinking, oh, she's gone to seduce him, to occupy him otherwise, and I'm going to go rescue her. Mm. And so he breaks in and he knocks the cowboy out. And she says, oh, I was waiting for you next door. <laughs> and so she she didn't go through, she didn't go try to seduce him like you might expect from a role like that in yeah, she other films. She doesn't saving. Yeah. Right, exactly. So she doesn't have to put herself in those kind of situations. She's not a damsel in distress at all. She doesn't need saving, like you said. Mm-hmm. Now, what about Mr. Ego, the, the sort of menacing <laughs> robot-esque bad guy? I mean, he's not completely a robot, but he has those qualities to him. Yeah, Mr. Igo is like, I I can't explain his purpose in this film other than to be a terrifying sort of villain henchman. For, for, for a movie about miniaturization, the miniaturization is not the most over-the-top part. Like, Mr. Igo, that, that this character could conceivably exist in the world to be this henchman for these really rich bad guys... I think that's that's where a lot of the comedic intent lies. That said, he he is scary. He's terrifying, and and really no no character in this film is is wasted. If if you're looking at this movie as I was just before we sat down to record too, even characters without dialogue, there's a lot of effort being made to showcase that 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 talent. Like Mr. Igo, the reason I'm thinking of this now, like pops a clown's balloon on his way out of the mall. And like that clown does not have any dialogue, but like just does the best sad face ever. Yeah, it's the saddest like, little king clown it, in that it, moment. It makes yeah, he's the saddest clown <laughs> ever. And it it just there's so much of, of of that really in this film. And Mr. Igo is I guess you you see so much more of him and he, and he he is, you know, fully fleshed out, I believe, as a character. He sort of is just the guy who who wants death and destruction and and is happy. He loves his job. His job just happens to be killing people. He's fleshed out 
in that we we don't know anything about him, so he's scarier. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. So the, the first time we see him, he's waiting in the car outside the lab when they are raiding it to to steal the microchip or whatever it is, and he aims his hand he sort of points his finger gun Mm -hmm. at this kid who's playing with his bike outside and it makes me wonder i don't i don't remember it doesn't show like the kid laying on the ground the next scene does it no the kid's okay yeah the kid is playing with his bike in another scene when he goes in the mall so the kid's fine gotcha gotcha but so at that point he's ready to shoot down the kid like he would do it but then he gets the call okay we need to stop this guy yeah and so then we see okay what was that finger gun oh it's actually a gun. It's actually a gun. Right. He, he, he shoots down the scientist. What's his name? Ozzy Wexler. Yes, Ozzy. Thank you. Played by John Hora. He shoots him down in the mall. And that's the first time we realize, whoa, there's a little bit extra to this guy. He, he's, he's a little bit more than just a scary looking individual. He has a gun in his hand, among other things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a hitman. And, uh, you know, I have to say about, about Ozzy, if we, could, if we could just switch gears briefly to this character of Ozzy, this scientist, I just love this guy in this movie. When they're initially like, he's your introduction to and only exposition for what this experiment was originally intended to be. Things go off the rails real quickly, but the sort of how how Ozzy's controlling his lab or walking around his lab, instructing his uh, scientific assistants to either help him out or not look at the camera when he's talking to it. You know, it's just like a really fun character. And then the last 10 minutes of his life are spent, you know, really trying to save the life of Tuck. And and he, he accomplishes this by getting Tuck safely uh, into Jack's body. But one thought that I had while watching uh, the movie this latest time was how special it is that the film kind of even takes you into the perspective of Ozzy as his last dying moments, you know, being surrounded by these, these mascots, these crazy creatures that are like mall entertainment. The camera actually does like a first person perspective as all fades to black and he dies. And I'm just like, that's, that's, that shows some heart, you know, for this guy. This guy just got like the, if it's 24, he would just get the soft clock. He absolutely was a crucial part of this film not to be forgotten. And he's just really laid his life out on the line. So this film does have the capacity for, I think, great heart. And you do feel bad for this guy because his last moments were being surrounded by strangers and strange costumes. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting shot. I, I took note of that when I was watching earlier as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it sort of just emphasizes that this guy has been shot down in sort of the last place you would expect that. In in the middle of a mall in San Francisco, balloons nearby, clowns, and people in animal costumes. Like, why why would you get shot down there? And that <laughs> it, it, it just really does... It's such a happy place. Yeah, for sure. And it, it does add a little bit more to to the, the weight of his death, I think. Mm-hmm. Any other characters? Definitely the cowboy. Got to talk. Oh, about the, the cowboy. cowboy, of course. What do you What do you think about the cowboy played by Robert Picardo? He was a little silly at first. You know, the first time we see him is on the airplane, and he pulls out a cigar He's and smoking on the airplane. <laughs> and my first thought was, okay, had they banned smoking on flights at this point or not? Yes, they had. Okay, and so he 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 stubs it out on his hand and he puts it in the pocket of the guy next to him who is clearly not happy sitting next to such a a flamboyant individual Mm -hmm. as the cowboy 
then later we see him again at the club and he's dancing, have a good time and all into it when Lydia comes up and starts dancing with him. And he, he really is just this colorful individual who, again, we don't know a whole lot about until it's revealed. Oh, he's a technology salesman mm. and he, he isn't necessarily a bad guy in this movie. He's just uh, somebody helping to, to further the plot that much more. Yeah, he's a go, he's a go between, and he's just another one of this movie's rich, vibrant characters. I, like this film doesn't take itself too seriously, but it takes itself seriously enough for some gravitational, you know, weight uh, to be put on different situations. But the cowboy is a is a relief for that. the The cowboy is just so unique and interesting. He sings to himself. He pretends that a hairdryer is a gun uh, and swings it around while he's singing. I'm an old cow hen. It just, it, it's, it's such a, I think, colorful character to watch on screen. And then Jack actually has to impersonate him, it turns out. And the only reason that that whole scene and that whole sequence works is because there was a lot there to impersonate, you know, it, it's, he's such an over the top character that Jack is able to pick up on, you know, Jack, who's never done anything like this in his, in his life before is able to quickly pick up on the persona and do enough of a character to, for the most part, fool the bad guys into his real identity. And then we have the actual like main antagonist, the actual bad guys in this movie who are Victor Scrimshaw and Dr. Margaret Kanker, who have stolen one of these chips, are trying to get back the second one, and so they've employed Mr. Igo, and they've, they're, they're trying to do this deal with the cowboy to get money and sell the chips and all that kind of stuff. And they, you know, they, well, especially Scrimshaw have a couple funny scenes themselves, but I think the, the culmination of all of their villainy and <laughs> this over the top, ludicrous moment is when they have shrunk to maybe 50 to 70 percent of their actual size yeah. and they they they're hiding in the back of the car and then they you see these these deformed little hands put themselves around jack's eyes as he's driving and it, it's just this this silly scene and it plays off so well it, it doesn't come across as like b-movie-esque or or no. or trash yeah. or anything like that it's a fun scene but it is very over the top in a fun way yeah, I mean, there's that one point later on where they're standing on each other's shoulders, right? right. And, like to to use the phone and the telephone's so big. I th I think that's you know part of what I like about this movie too is you're introducing this concept of miniaturization, but you're really following it through. Like we've we've seen sort of not only full miniaturization but half minim miniaturization as well like the film goes more places than you expect that it would or more than it would need to there's also this concept introduced of wherever margaret like margaret knows ozzy ozzy calls her out by name when she's in invading his lab and she describes everything in that lab as being so primitive and yet this this primitive lab has managed to do something that her much more better funded lab has not been able to do, and that is miniaturization. And so she's still lowering herself to steal that technology while insulting it. It's an interesting sort of character trait. But when Mr. Igo is miniaturized and you get a look at like the pod that he is operating, it is way more advanced than what Tuck is 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 in. And, you know, you kind of see like just through these characters, through the costumes and sets, you know, different concepts like the the technology market that Scrimshaw and Margaret are part of is, in fact, very competitive. And I think it just adds a little bit of believability here and there. 
Agreed. Um, any other characters? Wendy, Jack's coworker. Wendy. Oh yes, who, yes. <laughs> you're <laughs> you're probably the only person at the supermarket I haven't slept with, and you're the only one I'm even remotely attracted to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you. That's a, sort of a glimpse into Jack's life. Of this is this is my option. Like if I if I want a woman at this <laughs> point in my life, this is who I've got who chews gum nonstop and obnoxiously mm-hmm. doesn't remember our dates the next day. Yeah, have you ever tried slam dancing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's where you were. Yeah, it's the dialogue is is 100% on this movie. It's excellent. And then there's, there's that scene where Lydia and Jack are together at the club and they're after the cowboy and Wendy shows up and she's in this huge 80s get out. She's got her, her hair all styled in the era. And you think... Hey, maybe they're hitting it off. Maybe it wouldn't be a bad thing if they did. And at the end of the film, as Jack is sort of reevaluating his life and everything has come to pass and he looks back and he says, Wendy, not a chance. And that you, you really see that he's, he's moved on. He's, he's letting go of the past and is ready for the future. Yeah. And his, his self-worth has increased too. There might've been, I mean, he was essentially, he asked her out on a date before, but you know, before the movie starts, they had a date. She stood him up. He was going to consider maybe going at it again. Nope, not anymore. He has the right self-worth as a result of uh, this film's adventures, and he knows that he does not need that crazy, crazy mess in, in his life. Especially after having a woman like Lydia who has her life so put together and is so successful and yeah, independent. she's extremely competent, uh, knows what she wants, that all that. Right. And at some level, she does fall for him. And they have that moment where they kiss while imprisoned. And so after seeing somebody like Lydia fall in love with him, he, it sort of raises his standard <laughs> for a life partner, uh, for somebody who he would seek out a companionship with. Yeah. Well, cool. Let's let's move on. Let's talk about the m- music a little bit. So again, by the wonderful, outstanding Jerry Goldsmith, a lot of this score is as beautiful as expected because it is by him. And, you know, the the first time I really truly noticed the, the music was in the scene where they're preparing the experiment mm. and they're getting ready to shrink it. And it's a track called Let's Get Small. And it, it just is building this quiet energy and it gets bigger and grander and a little bit more sweeping and very Goldsmith-esque in a great way. And there are several moments like that throughout the film. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I was, I was particularly moved by some of the, uh, more romantic offerings on the soundtrack as well. Jack and Lydia kissing, talking, you know, he has to, when he drives up in the car and she recognizes that it's Tuck's car, um, she knows about the suitcase, you know, all, all that sort of tender music is also very fitting. So he's able to do really sci-fi, lots of like, um, little buttons going off that sort of, you know, sound, but also like the touching emotional theme. So he's able to, he's very versatile and the movie benefits from, from that. However, I'll also say that the actual um, pop music that's used in this film is excellent as well. Two tracks in particular by Sam Cooke play a very large role in the film, in the events of the film. Of course, Cupid uh, the song by Sam Cooke is Tuck and Lydia's love song. This is the song that, even in the beginning of the movie, after he's kicked out of the party uh, he's, and makes a complete ass of himself, he's wasted, drunk as a skunk, and all he has to do is put this song on and do a couple moves, and Lydia is seduced. She's unable to say no. 
He is just so charming, and this song is what does it. And it's a good, it's a really good song. The lyrics are great. I've, I've ever since I first saw this movie and had like Napster. Uh, I think I remember downloading this song on like Napster Cupid because it was excellent. And then Twisting the Night Away, also by Sam Cooke, is the the great, wonderful dance scene when Jack and Tuck, when Tuck gets uh, Jack drunk for the first time, and Jack Martin Short is just dancing around Tuck's place and dancing with the robot and dancing with the fish and just playing the organ and having just all of the fun in the world. Any movie, I wrote this down in my notes, but like any movie that has like just an unbridled, really fun kind of fearless dance scene is okay in my book. Like there's this one and Look Who's Talking has that scene where John Travolta and the baby are dancing around to Walking on Sunshine, Katrina in the Waves, like just such joy, such absolute joy is conveyed in the scene. And the movie is just so movies like this where that happens are just so fun to watch. And both of those pop songs actually do serve story purpose as well. So you have the establishment at the beginning that Cupid is their love song. And then later in the film, uh, Tuck uses that song while he's inside Lydia to signal to her, hey, I'm inside mm. your body instead of Jack's. And so maybe it might be a good idea if I get transferred back or something to that effect. And so he uses that as a communication tool. And then the song that you just mentioned. Um, yeah, Twist in the Night Away. Yeah, the, the other Sam Cooke song, Twist in the Night Away, the first time we do hear it is when Jack is sort of letting loose for the first time. He's got drunk. He's he's having a good time. And then we hear that again at the very end of the film, into the end credits, as Jack has decided to go out on this new life for himself. So both songs, good purposes in the film. And then again, Jerry Goldsmith, top of his game, as always. I don't think he ever wasn't top of his game. You have fun action music like The Bicycle Chase and Truck Rescue. And there were actually elements of the score that reminded me of Wendy Carlos's music for... The, um, the Shining and for Tron a little bit Ooh, interesting. and even some of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey you know Strauss's also Sprach's Zarathustra hmm. mixed with Goldsmith's more traditional orchestral sound and that's really showcased in the very first track if you get the album which is called Warner Brothers Fanfare slash The Drink and then later entering Bloodstream and several other tracks and moments in the film so music all around great stuff here yeah now, what about themes and takeaways and all that kind of good stuff? What do you got? Oh, um, I think for themes, obviously it's a movie. It's it's because it's so so much of it exists to entertain. Uh, you don't think of this film as having like a heavy moral weight or or anything like that. But I I think it's I think the the lesson is appreciate what you have, which you were talking very well about. You know, Tuck and sort of his realization because. Jack is clearly falling for her and Tuck, it's his own fault. Like he let her get away and it's appreciate what you have. It's live in the moment. And if I could put a third theme in there, it's, it's also live life for the fullest, for its fullest. Jack, you know, is it's, it's not really stated how unhappy he is, but the character arc showing him at the end of the film when he's driving away in a car, top speed, and just a grin comes right to his face, you can see that that is what makes life worth living. Right. And to that effect, I, I wrote down humility versus daring or a boring life versus a fun life. I mean, those are the extremes of it. Mm -hmm. But it, it's healthy to have a mix of both as both of these characters learn. Tuck maybe had a little bit more of the less humility 
side of himself where he, he was just living for him and not for other people. And then you had Jack, on the other hand, who was a hypochondriac and was scared of everything and going to the doctor frequently because of this fear and that fear. And over the course of the film, they learned to mix those sides of themselves and really just let loose a little bit more and hold back a little bit more when the situation is appropriate. And then the other one that I wrote down was the extraordinary finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. So even from the very first shot of the film, you see these bright colors and you know, my first thought was, are we close up on a diamond? Yeah. And we're, we're going back and forth and this music is all mysterious. And then it zooms out and it's, it's a glass of ice. It's a glass of ice. All this, <laughs> these extraordinary visuals came from ice. And then further than that, you have, it goes mechanical hand. You don't know anything beyond the fact that he's wearing gloves. And then he's shooting a guy with his finger gun. And then the, the more important ones, you have Tuck being shrunk inside of Jack. So Jack has this sort of hidden side to himself with almost uh, occasional super-esque powers yeah. from uh, Tuck's presence. But then Jack himself, who's this boring guy who finds strength within himself from Tuck's presence initially, but then from taking chances and exploring situations and doing things he normally wouldn't have done in his previous life. So this idea of extraordinary things coming out of ordinary things. And that, that was one of my takeaways. I love, I love that a lot. And also if you're looking at finding the extraordinary in the ordinary, you know, the human body that's as ordinary as it gets, but when you're inside it looking out, you see just how intricate everything is. I mean, the different systems of the body that, Tuck has to travel to or through or get away from are serving functions. And it's amazing when you see like walls of red blood cells in a vein, you know, just going through real quick and you're like, man, they all serve a purpose. And I know it's for like the purpose of the film that they're showing them. But if you really think about what the inside of our bodies, you know, all the complicated systems that are working together just to keep us alive, just so that we can do this podcast, uh, it's, it's astonishing. Um, and so I, I think the film really does a good job of bringing that out as well. Given the main character, who's a real, like, sort of egotist, drunkard, this perspective of being so small and insignificant, I think directly contributes to his overall revelation that it is worth living with others and to live with others and to be part of a larger world. I think it allows him to integrate better into you know, the society that he's got, Tuck, uh, because he's been so small and been on the inside looking out. Agreed. Any other sort of final thoughts on the movie? Yeah, man. Again, the dialogue. <laughs> Somebody help me. I'm possessed. <laughs> like, <laughs> just just all of this, all of this stuff, like between Jack and his doctor, too. Whereas his doctor uh, says, demons talk through you, not to you. Right, right. In medieval times, they would flay you, uh, flay the skin off your body while you were alive. I don't know what the modern solution for that word would would be, and um, the they even almost like they they go for one further when when Tuck is about to be miniaturized or re resized, and you know it's the end of the film, and it, it's established that Tuck is like can't breathe, <laughs> he's suffocating. But they have this computer program. I guess it's because they use the um, the chip from the from the bad guy's computer that it, it presents an additional problem. Eat me, drink me. They have to choose which one is which. And Jack Jack's like, I think it's from The Exorcist. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> that line gets me 
every single time. It's like seconds later, he's like, oh, Alice in Wonderland, Alice in Wonderland. But it's just his delivery, man, Martin Short's delivery. This is this is my favorite Martin Short performance by far. It is so funny. And the the inflection and the dialogue and the writing is is just so generous at showcasing all of the characters and all the actors' specialty. For sure. I, I don't have a whole lot extra to add to that. It was a fun sci-fi film. I like Dennis Quaid a lot. I like Martin Short a lot, especially. It's got sci-fi elements. It's got comedy elements. It's got adventure. Everything is put together. It's another sort of genre-crossing film. And, you know, even though the premise is silly at times and there are crazy things that happen and unbelievable things that happen, it never... I, I never had to disguise my joy, I guess I should say. It, it was always a fun watch. I, I never had to sort of set aside any disbelief. It was just, hey, this is a movie. I'm in this world and I'm enjoying what's happening. Mm-hmm. So it was it was silly, but it was an enjoyable ride for me. I am really glad you liked it. Uh, so far, I think we're three and three. <laughs> we are so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. I think that is the end of the official 39th episode of Cinescope. Ooh. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining me sort of at the last minute, but uh, talking about a movie that you just mentioned to me. Thrilled to be back and thrilled that that worked out so easily. Definitely. Contact for the show. You can find us at facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please remember to go to iTunes and help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing and sharing those episodes, your favorite episodes, with your friends. And email feedback or ideas to the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com and also use that contact if you are interested in co hosting. If you have a movie that you love, whether it's niche sort of like this one is or if it's a blockbuster or any any film that you think you could talk about for a little bit i'd love to hear from you and maybe get you on the show in the future mm-hmm. eric where can people find you online find me at spielerman s-p-i-e-l-e-r-m-a-n on twitter that is the best way to get a hold of me and i will also make sure to link mugglecast and all your other endeavors on the show yeah. notes Definitely MuggleCast. Appreciate that. Definitely. Uh, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. In all the show notes, all of our contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you once again, Eric. It's always a great time having you on the show to talk movies with you. Likewise. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 39. I'm Chad Hopkins, this was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 40. Have fun and celebrate movies. Goodbye. Goodbye.